walking the same old road for miles and miles. You've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lie. If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you've got pain, he's a pain taker. this Sunday.
this time, why don't you just look around? There are people that have been here for a long time and people that are just becoming a part of the Hopevale family. So find out how long the person next to you has been a Hopevalian. Hello, good morning. While you're standing, if there's spaces or seats in between that you guys could squeeze in, we'd really appreciate that as people keep coming in and we can make room. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Hopevale Church. Um, and the Bible tells us uh, in Genesis, when God created us, he created us male and female. And while we are equal in value and purpose, um, sin came into that relationship. We see things through different lenses. And sometimes our relationships feel more like mixed martial arts where you just kind of want to mm, just choke each other out. So my wife was in the first service, so it's okay to say that now. And I'm pretty sure they record the first service, not this one. So pray for me. Um, all that being said, there's an event coming up in March, and Dr. Les and Leslie Parrott are going to share something with us right now. Hey, Michiganders, this is Drs. Les and Leslie Parrott in Seattle, and we're headed your way for fight night. That's right, we'll be there in March, Saturday, March 18, to share a fun date night together. Yeah, and it is gonna be fun. This is kind of a laugh while you learn event, and you right. might be thinking, fight night? Uh, why would <laughs> I wanna go That's not a that? good date. Right. But we promise you it is. You're gonna have so much fun, and you're gonna learn and laugh together. Yeah, let's be honest, we all have conflict, so why not learn how to use conflict right. to your advantage? You know, conflict, is the price we pay for deeper intimacy. So, so if you have the right tools, and that's exactly what we're gonna give you on this day, you will use that to have more of a connection right. with each other. So, and you're gonna laugh while you learn. Nobody's gonna yeah. be put on the spot. You don't have to sing Kumbaya to anybody. <laughs> so just relax, come bring some friends, make it a double date, you're gonna have a blast. So get ready to rumble. See you soon. All right, Ooh. round two. Um, all right, so for more information, we have these flyers. Um, they are out at the Connect Grow Serve desk, and if you're interested in that, or maybe not your marriage, but somebody else's marriage, and you want to bring them with, and maybe they need that, um, you can get more information there. So as the ushers come forward, let's pray uh, as we take our offering. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you just for the opportunity to be here this morning, and uh, again, we thank you just for that break in the winter and the warmth we've felt the last couple of days, and um, Lord, we want to take our gifts now, and we want to honor you with them. Not because we owe you or we give out of compulsion, but we give because you first loved us, and we want to love you back. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for all these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
tonight as a church as we sing, Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise another day that you let us get out of bed and you put air in our lungs so that we could worship and praise you. If you're a believer that God sent his only son to die for you, let's just give him a five-second praise. Come on, lift up some noise. Let's go. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Somebody enjoys warm weather around here. Excellent energy, great worship, and we do. We give praise to our God. We introduced that song a few months ago, and there are just some songs that really seem to resonate with us as a church body, and that's one of them. Well, we are rolling along in our Hashtag Blessed series, uh, Learning and Living the Beatitudes of Jesus, and I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, okay? Here we go. Think about this. Uh, who's the best Christian you know? Who's the best Christian you know? Who is the most spiritual, most religious, godliest person you can think of? Maybe someone in your family, right? Like a parent or a caring, distant relative. Maybe it's an influential minister, a pastor, a priest from your growing up years. Maybe it's a friend or a coworker who just always seems to radiate faith. Or maybe it's a well-known Christian speaker or author who has had a profound impact on your life. Who is that person for you? You know, I like to ask people that question every now and again. As a matter of fact, I asked that very question to some of our church staff a few weeks ago, which, by the way, I told them that if they didn't answer me, they were all fired. So, it... no, just kidding. No, I, I like to ask that question actually for a couple reasons. One, I do like to learn about people's faith story. I like to learn about those key influential people who've made a difference in their lives. But then second, I also like to ask that question because it gives me greater insight into how they think about the Christian faith. So it's not just who is the answer to that question, but it's also why did they answer that question the way they did? In other words, why do they think, right, makes a person a good Christian? What are the ways they measure someone else's spiritual vitality and, and maturity? Now, they're good questions to think about, but to be honest, they're certainly not original to me. No, you go back to the time of Jesus, and you can see that people back then were asking and thinking about the same kind of questions. Last week, I talked about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were religious standard bearers of Jesus' time. They were the ones that everyone else looked up to when it came to living a devout, moral life. They were well known for the religious practices like prayer, like the giving of alms to the poor, like fasting, and really just generally their strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And so if we were to time travel backwards 2,000 years, to the Middle East, and we were to ask that very same question about who people knew as the most spiritual, most religious person, chances are 
A lot of people would point to the Pharisees or an expert of the law who had influenced their life. The sad thing is, however, that what they stood for was far from what God desired from his people. Like I said last week, these leaders, they were all religion, no passion. They were all duty, no desire. They honored God with their lips, Jesus said, but their hearts were far away. And so a big part of Jesus' mission here on this earth was not only to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death on our behalf, but Jesus also had to dismantle the empty and hypocritical standards of righteousness that these religious leaders had held up as the model for true spirituality. And so you see this time and time in the Gospels, this dismantling, and it grows in a crescendo as you get closer to the cross. Now, one of the key confrontational moments between Jesus and these leaders comes in Matthew chapter 22. We don't have time to look at the entire chapter, right? But the Pharisees had challenged Jesus with a question. It was a way to try to trick him and discredit his ministry. Jesus, of course, responds with great wisdom. And this then launches into a series of more questions, which culminates with a passage that might be familiar to some of you. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, got together, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus, right? Tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment? Now, a lot of us, we see that and we think, okay, Jesus, you know, of the Ten Commandments, you know, which do you think is most important? But that's not what was being asked. Now, back in Jesus' day, there were actually 613 different commandments that the faithful in Judaism required to obey. 613. And there was symbolism for that because 365 of those 613 were negative, and 365 corresponded with the number of days in the year. 248 were positive, and that 248 number, I don't know how they came up with this, were the number of bones in the body known back then. So Jesus, this guy asks, which of these 613 commandments is the greatest? And Jesus replied, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Take all 613 and it boils down to this. It has to do with love. Love God with everything you've got. Love God with the entirety of your being. That's number one, and yet Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, that's a a saying for the entire Old Testament, right? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The greatest commandment Jesus gives us as his people is love. But it's love in a twofold direction. Love God and love people. And what's really important to notice here is how Jesus lumps the two of them together. So it's not here's number one and here's number two. No, it's more like here's 1A, here's 1B. They go together. And so in Jesus' mind, you can't separate the two. That if you take away love for your neighbor, you know, loving people, then you really can't say that you have love for God. And so it's interesting that if we time-traveled back and asked Jesus our opening question about the most spiritual person he knew, I don't know what his who would be, but we would know the why, right? We would know his test, his measurement, because he gives it to us right here. Love for God, love for people. That is the measure of true spirituality. As a matter of fact, it's not only something you see in this story, but it's something that goes even further back than the first century, If you look at the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament that the Lord gave to Moses, you see this very same love God, love people pattern. For those of you who are part of our Ten Commandments series two years ago, you might remember that the first four commandments reflect this love God aspect, while numbers five through ten are horizontal in nature. They talk about our love for other people. Think about that, right, if you know them. Honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't lie, don't covet, don't steal. They're about what? They're about our love and respect for other people. Well, this isn't a series on the Ten Commandments. It's a series on the Beatitudes. And in a moment, we're going to read through those Beatitudes together. 
And as we do, I want you to notice something. I want you to see how the Beatitudes follow this exact same pattern, this love God, love people pattern that is not supposed to be thought of of two different things, but intersected as one, right? So not just the Ten Commandments, not just the greatest commandment, Jesus says, but right here in the Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes, they're primarily about us and God. Those first four, by the way, are the ones we've already seen. But then the second four, right, they're more about us and others. So we're going to read through this again. I'm going to have you stand with me, if you're able, and let's read through these together. Here we go. Oh, wow. Look at that. Wow, something must have happened when we put those slides together. All right. This is like your midterms, okay? Right, we've done four, we got four to go. Here we go, let's see if you got it, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well done. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Okay, so I know we gather here for worship and it's not about self-congratulations, but boy, you guys did a great job. Way to go, all right. Blessed are the humble, by the way. Okay, um, <laughs> all right. So here are the second four. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well done. Go ahead. You guys can have a seat. You know, if you've uh, come kind of partway through this series, we've put together some resources to help get the Beatitudes in here and in here. We've got some cards out at our ministry desk in the lobby. We also have some digital resources that you can download to your computer or your phone as well, and you can check those out on our website. Well, like I said before, today as we tackle this fifth blessed our statement from Jesus, we're now moving from the love God beatitudes to the love people beatitudes. And so on Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, we read this, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is very clear that the blessings of God will come to us when we are merciful to others. Merciful. Now, to understand this beatitude, to put it into practice, we need to know what it means to be merciful. So what exactly is mercy? What does it look like when we're merciful to others? Well, I, I've heard some pastors before explain grace and mercy this way, that grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. God giving me what I don't deserve, grace. God not giving me what I do deserve. Now, if that's a little confusing, just that next slide. Grace is more about sharing, while mercy is about sparing. You know, somebody stopped me after the first service said, God, that was a little confusing for me. And I said, well, did you see the movie Gladiator? You know, with Russell Crowe, and they'd be in the arena, and, you know, they'd have the knife to the guy's throat, and the emperor would kind of do this or this, right? Mercy is sparing, right? Sparing. So this is a good starting point, right, to understand these terms, but we have to be careful that we don't press this distinction too far, because when you read through the Bible, you see that these terms often get used interchangeably, especially mercy, where it's spoken of frequently in these very positive and generous terms. Now, if we really want to get a good handle on understanding mercy, we need to start with God, for the Lord himself is described as a merciful God. In Exodus 34, where the Lord first reveals himself to Moses, we read this, that the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that God in both his mercy and his grace, the Lord is slow to anger, right? That's what he's holding back, right? Slow to anger while abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that's what he's pouring out. 
He's sparing his righteous anger while he's sharing his love and faithfulness. That's who God is. Similarly, then, in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about God and his saving work in our lives, and he describes it this way, that like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, right? I want you to hold on to that. Today, we have been worshiping a God who is rich, wealthy, beyond belief in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, this right here is the gospel in a nutshell. It starts with bad news about ourselves that all of us as sinful as selfish people, we're deserving of God's wrath. We're deserving of his righteous judgment. In other words, we are poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished. And when we own up to that poverty, it leads us to spiritual mourning. But thank God the story doesn't end there. Now, what does it say here, verse 4, but? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, sparing us from the judgment we rightfully deserve and sharing with us the gift of his son, our Savior, Jesus, who bore our judgment in our place. And so because of that, it is by grace that you and I have been saved, all because of the great love of our God, who is rich in mercy. Tremendous. And as you think about these two passages that describe our Lord as a merciful God, it reminds us then of this very important and yet very stark contrast that while God is rich in mercy, we are not. We're not. No, left to our own devices, as selfish and stubborn and sinful people, we don't naturally come by mercy. We don't. It's not part of our makeup. Think about it. If mercy is not giving people what they deserve, and that was just something that came to us normally and naturally, then why would we struggle with things like revenge, retaliation, wanting to get even, you know, that people would get what's coming to them, right? Why is it so hard to forgive? Or how about this? Why, why when we know someone who continually makes poor choices, sends their life spinning out of control, why is there that ugly side in us that finds some kind of perverse pleasure in their failure and misery, you know, that they ended up getting what they deserve for all the poor choices they made. And then on top of that, why do we get upset when someone else bails them out of trouble, spares them from further humiliation? Listen, if mercy came naturally to us, those things wouldn't be a struggle. But they are, aren't they? At least for me, I know they are. And if that at all describes you, don't feel too bad because you're not alone. Now, that kind of natural resistance to mercy isn't just part of everyone here. It's also part of those who lived back in the time of Jesus. So take the Romans, for instance. They valued many of the same character qualities we would value today. Things like courage and wisdom and loyalty and achievement and self-control. Admirable lists, to be sure. But mercy was a different story. No, for them, mercy was weakness. Mercy was disgraceful. Mercy was a threat to their empire. Now, for the Pharisees, for the teachers of the law, they gave lip service to mercy because it's talked about in the Old Testament. But how they lived, it told an entirely different story. And so Jesus, in one of his strongest condemnations of them, he says this, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, little religious act, right? But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, things like justice, things like mercy, things like faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, you do all these outwardly religious little nitpicky things right, but you're missing the big picture and being merciful to others. That's part of the big picture. See, if you're all about obeying the rules and keeping score while your heart remains unchanged, then there's no way you're going to be able to dig deep and find enough mercy to share with other people on a consistent basis. It's just not possible. So how can we, who don't find that mercy comes naturally, how can we possibly be merciful people? Well, the answer really is found back at the beginning of the Beatitudes, right? The ones we've already looked at. The stuff that's going on below the surface, Right? See, the solution to our mercy problem starts with a humble and honest admission that we are spiritually desperate, that we are spiritually broke, that we in meekness need to submit 
spiritually to surrender to God's hand of authority over our lives. That's the only way we make room for mercy and grace, to come into our lives to change us from the inside out. Like we saw last week, Jesus didn't come for those of us who think we're spiritually healthy, but he rather he came for those of us who know that we're not. And so the only way we can truly be merciful to others is because God has been merciful to us. The only way we can be truly merciful to others is because God has first been merciful to us, and it's when we personally experience his mercy in a transformational way, that's when we change. We can't give what we don't have. It's not part of our makeup, but when God gets a hold of our lives, when Jesus rescues us out of our desperation, out of our brokenness, when the Holy Spirit changes our desires so that we hunger and thirst to become more righteous, right? More God-honoring, more others-focused, that's when mercy starts showing up in us. And so we who are poor in spirit, we who kept track of every time we were wronged by someone else, we who cherish these sweet dreams of payback and revenge, we're now becoming different people. Why? Because a God who is rich in mercy has poured it out on us. Jesus sums it up best this way. Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Or more completely, be merciful to other people, Jesus says, just as your heavenly Father has been and continues to be incredibly merciful to you. I want you, Jesus says, to express the same kind of mercy to others as you have personally experienced from your God. That's how naturally unmerciful people like us can tap into the blessings of Jesus. This fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So let's get a little more practical now. Let's talk about what it means for us to be merciful to others. What does mercy in action look like? Well, first, let's understand what mercy is not. Mercy goes against a pure merit principle, right? A merit principle where everyone gets what they deserve in life. That we've got to live with our mistakes, that there's no room for forgiveness or second chances. See, mercy looks far different than that. You know, there are a different description in Scripture, and, and to look at a couple different sides of mercy, I want you to see how Jesus explains it. And he uses stories, or what we would call parables, to illustrate these two sides of mercy. The first is the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells the story as a way to explain what loving our neighbor looks like. So Jesus begins the story by telling us about this traveler. And this traveler is attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beaten, and left for dead. Jesus says then that later, on two separate occasions, high-profile religious leaders are traveling down that same road. They both see this man in need but they keep on going. But then there's this third man, a Samaritan, that is a man from Samaria, a region not known for religious respectability. This man actually stops, and he helps out. So picking up the story, verse 34, Luke 10. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus asked the guy who asked the question, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? What does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Extend kindness to those in need and do it in very practical ways. Extending kindness. Now, you might be thinking, you know, that's a nice story and all, but what does extending kindness have to do with people not getting what they deserve, right? Well, in a more direct, indirect way, you know, this parable really does fit that definition because, you know, if you think about it, people in need usually have contributed to their own dire situation. That in a way, based on their performance, they've earned their desperate conditions. Take this story, for instance. The religious leaders who passed by could have rightfully thought, you know, this is a dangerous road with a reputation for robberies. 
And this guy should have known better to travel alone while carrying all that money. So in a way, because he was ignorant and irresponsible, he deserved his fate, right? Think about today. You've got that single parent family living in a more impoverished part of town, struggling because of some life choices in the past weren't necessarily the best. And then because that parent is exhausted from working two low-paying jobs, they, they just carelessly leave the stove burner on overnight. Causes a house fire, they lose everything. Now, I know this is going to sound heartless, but you can make the case that they got what they deserved, right? They did that. If only they were more responsible, that fire never would have happened. But mercy sees things a little differently, doesn't it? Mercy recognizes that no one's perfect. Mercy recognizes that life can be hard and cruel and that there are times when mercy and kindness need to rule the day. And so mercy helps, mercy shares, mercy expresses generosity, knowing that being merciful to others should be the only natural response, or should I say supernatural response, from those of us who have been shown mercy by an infinite God who is rich in mercy. So mercy is extending kindness. It's helping others even if they don't deserve it. There's another side of mercy, though, and I think this one's even tougher. Jesus tells this story and talks about this mercy in a parable called the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. Now, this is a story about two guys who owe some money that they borrowed. They're unable to pay back their lender. The first guy owes the king of the land 10,000 bags of gold, Jesus says. 10,000 bags of gold are about 20 years' worth of wages. This guy is brought in before the king to repay this enormous debt. He can't, so he falls to his knees. He begs for more time. Well, this merciful king not just grants him more time, but he actually forgives the entire debt. Forgives it all, wipes it out, this staggering amount of money. It's incredible, and this should be the end to a very happy story. But it's not. In verse 28, But when that servant went out, the one who was just forgiven of all his debt, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. hundred silver coins was roughly a day's amount of wages, right? So it's 20 years of wages, one day's wage, right? And he grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back, which, by the way, is the exact same thing the first servant said to the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Be patient with me. And yet his response to his fellow servant is the complete opposite of what he had experienced. Well, word gets back to the king, verse 32. And the master called in the servant, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? See, that's the punchline right there. Not just shouldn't you have had mercy because it's an altru- altruistic, you know, kind thing to do. No, You should have had mercy on you just as I had on you. Verse 34, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You know, for me, this is one of the most challenging passages in the entire Bible. It is, because far too often I am that wicked servant, right? Maybe not in all my actions, but far too often in all my thoughts. I'm keeping score. I'm nursing hurts. I'm holding grudges. I'm thinking of the people who've done me wrong, and it's just not fair that they should get away with it, right? And think about it. This first forgiven servant, I mean, that second servant technically did owe him money, right? And so if you're going to go by the letter of the law, it was a debt outstanding, and yet, right, given this parable, his response is beyond ridiculous, But the one who has shown a tremendous amount of mercy couldn't even turn around and find it in his heart to find it just an eyedropper's worth of mercy and pay that forward to his fellow servant. And so as Christians, do you get the parallel? People hurt us. 
They do out of selfishness, out of stubbornness, out of sinfulness. They say and do hurtful things. They deceive, they mislead, they break promises. And just like the parable, they may borrow money and not pay us back. And see what I love about Jesus' story? He doesn't airbrush that reality. No, he spells it out. A genuine debt is owned. It's not overlooked. It's not forgotten. But it is put into perspective. The perspective of God's infinite mercy towards us, where Jesus is the one who bears up the wrongs that we suffer. The Apostle James puts it this way in his letter. James chapter 2, verse 12, verse 13. Speak and act, live a life as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. In other words, the, the gospel, right? Live your lives out of the gospel because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, because of Jesus, we as Christians, we're no longer judged by the law that brings death. No, we're judged by the law of the gospel that brings freedom, that brings life. And so because of that freedom, we now speak, we now act as people who have experienced God's great mercy. And so just as his mercy triumphs over his judgment in our lives, we then are called to live by the same principle. Blessed, right? Blessed are the merciful. Those who extend kindness, those who withhold judgment, for they will be shown mercy. So let me ask you a question. As we go through all this, as we think about the stories Jesus tells, as we think about our own experience of mercy that we have celebrated in worship today, where is God telling you to show mercy? Who's he bringing to your mind as someone that you need to be merciful towards? See, God's rich mercy in our lives changes everything. So it's no longer about that person, you know. Do they deserve my mercy? No, it's now on us. How can I express a fraction of the infinite mercy that God has given to me? How can I express that towards this person that the Lord has brought to my mind today? in this service. So for some of us here today, we need to be merciful to this specific someone by expressing kindness to them. But there's an undeserving person, right, in our lives we need to help. We need to be generous towards. Maybe it's generous with money. Maybe it's generous with time. Maybe it's generous with friendship. That's what some of us need to do this week. For others of us, we need to be merciful by withholding judgment there's someone in our life who's hurt us deeply, and all we can think about is revenge, payback, retaliation, getting even. We need to let the mercy of God take over in us. We need to give God our hurts and let him handle the justice. Now, depending on the situation, we may need a little time and distance from that person, but we create that separation not to punish them, but to let God work because it's best for everyone involved. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, as we wrap up today, there's one last question we need to answer. What does the second half of this beatitude mean? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does that mean? Because on the surface, it sounds a lot like a performance clause, right? That we'll earn God's mercy if we act like merciful people. But is that really what Jesus means? <laughs> well, in short, the answer is no. No, when we talk about personally experiencing God's mercy and grace, it is wholly unconditional, right? There's nothing we can do to achieve it, to earn it. So this beatitude is not saying that if we show other people mercy, then God's obligated to give us his mercy in return. It's not a deal. It's not a transaction. That's not what this beatitude is saying. But what is it saying then? Well, I think this beatitude has both a warning and an encouragement. A warning and an encouragement, and I'll close with this. First, the warning. That if we're not merciful towards others, maybe we've never experienced God's mercy in the first place. If we're not merciful towards others, maybe we've never really personally experienced God's mercy in the first place. Never really touched us. It never really changed us. That maybe like the Pharisees, we can talk a good game about mercy, but there is not any behavioral evidence in our lives to show that mercy has and still is personally transforming us. And I'm not talking about perfection because we all blow it, we all stumble, we all, you know, find anger and judgment getting, you know, the way. We are talking about progress. 
See, if our life is like we're more about extending judgment and withholding kindness, then I think we should be generally concerned that our hearts have been closed up to God's mercy. There's a warning here, just like the parable of the unmerciful servant. So take this beatitude as a warning. And yet also, I want you to see this beatitude as an encouragement. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, this is some speculation on my part, but I think the blessing is this, that the more we give mercy away to others, the more it increases our capacity to enjoy God's mercy. That the more we give mercy away to others, the more it increases our capacity to enjoy God's mercy. Does that make sense? So it's not that God gives one Christian more mercy than another. No, it's more about how much we're able to take in and enjoy. So whatever stage you are at in the Christian life, you can truly enjoy God's mercy. You can, but as you grow as a Christian, as you become more merciful to others, I really believe that your capacity to experience, to enjoy God's mercy enlarges. You see this in mature Christians who, as they grow in godliness, they actually become even more aware of their sinfulness and their desperate need for Jesus and his mercy. They, they're like these giant sponges, right? They're capable of soaking up more of God's infinite mercy, which they then turn around and give that away to others. That's why they're blessed. And think about what a great motivation, right, to grow as a believer in Jesus Christ. What a great motivation to give mercy away so that it increases our capacity, all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, right, to experience that in our lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let us be people of mercy. Let's be a church of mercy because we worship and we serve a God who is rich in mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, even um, preaching through a message like this, I realize that if we are always looking around us then life degenerates pretty quickly into performance, to eye for an eye, to retaliation, to revenge, to getting even. And it just, it really riles us up, right? And payback, and people treat us that way. It's what we see in our world, our culture, our politics. And it's so easy to get ensnared in that. Look, God, we have come into this place of worship, and we've looked up. And we see a God who is rich in mercy. We see a God who has graciously and generously given us the gift of his son, our Savior Jesus. And it changes everything. Changes us, Lord, we who are naturally unmerciful. We see that what we're experiencing, we begin to express. Lord, for all of us, literally hundreds in this room right now, you have names, you have faces, you have stories, you have situations. Let us step forward into those situations with mercy, whether it's extending kindness, whether it's withholding judgment, that we would be to others just as you have been, are, and always will be to us, a God who is rich in mercy. So may you, Holy Spirit, do this changing and transforming work in us by your grace and for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond in worship.
Everybody at Hopevale Church said, yeah. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord for his love, his mercy never ends. Next week, we'll continue our Beatitude series and learn what it means when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. But as you go from here, may you go flooded, lavished upon in the great mercy of a God who is rich in mercy towards you. God bless you.